This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Welcome to Listen In, a bite-sized bio podcast series allowing you to access the best of bite-sized bio webinars wherever you are. Hello, this is Karen O'Handon Court, and today in the Bioscience Mastery Academy, we'll be talking about image manipulation. Today's presenter is Dr. Christy Gelling. Christy did a PhD and a postdoc in yeast genetics and cell biology, then retrained as a science writer and journalist. She spent three years as an assistant editor at the journals Genetics and G3, Genes, Genomes, Genetics, until earlier this year when she became communications director for the journal's publisher, the Genetics Society of America. So let's dive straight into the presentation. Over to you, Christy. Okay, thanks, Karen. Um, so we're going to be talking today about image manipulation, what's okay and what's not okay. And we're going to be talking about what, uh, what Im inappropriate image manipulation is, how common it is, why you should care. We're going to have a quick look at some case studies and we're going to go through some guidelines for manipulating your images ethically. And you're going to learn which practices are considered fraud or misconduct by journals and, and research institutions, and how image formats and manipulations affect your data, and how to process your images in a way that ensures your science is sound and that your results are publishable. And um, I'm really coming at this not as an expert in image manipulation and an expert in how to do everything in Photoshop, but um, from the point of view of someone that understands what journals uh, want and what the, the rules are for publishing in a journal. So what are we talking about? What is image manipulation? <clears throat> uh, so the chances are that whatever kind of scientific image you are uh, have acquired, whether it's a Western blot or a gel or a micrograph or just a photo of some colonies on a plate, the chances are that the raw image doesn't look that nice and that you have to do some things to it to make it, um, make the features in it visible to other people. And the common example is you change the brightness and the contrast so that people can see what was really there. The problem comes because uh, manipulating images digitally is now so easy. So there's a lot of temptation for some people to take this too far um, into the area of fraud and changing their data so that there are features there that weren't there or removing things that were there. Um, so if you think of it in terms of a gel, here's an example of a, of a fraudulently manipulated Western blot where um, an inconvenient band was just deleted. And um, Um, the thing to, to understand is that there's a, a spectrum of image manipulations and we need to distinguish between fraudulent manipulations and inappropriate manipulations. Oh, a fraudulent manip image manipulation is basically faking your data. It's fabrication of something that didn't happen. And the, the criterion that journals use when um, making a determination of, of fraud is whether the manipulation of your data affected its interpretation. Did you change the conclusion because you added a band and subtracted a band? Or, uh, you know, 
whatever it was that you did to the, the to your image would it affect the way someone would interpret that data um the other type of of image manipulation problem that journals look at is inappropriate manipulation which i like to call fudging and the difference is is that this does not really affect the interpretation or the conclusion. Uh, it just is a misrepresentation of the data. And the most common thing that people do with fudging is they make their, their image look more beautiful than it really was. So for example, they might clean up the background or they might combine cells from different fields into one field to make it look like these cells were very uh, easy to find. Um, now, obviously inappropriate image manipulation is not as bad as faking your data, but it is still scientific misconduct. So both types of, of, of problems are considered scientific misconduct by both journals and research institutions. And so doing either kind is really not very good for your career. Um, uh, for example, in the United States, the Office of Research Integrity uh, is a government department who is charged with investigating scientific fraud. And since it became common for images to be processed digitally, they've spent most of their time investigating image-related fraud. So 68% of their cases involve falsified images. Um, <clears throat> and a misconduct uh, investigation is really not something that you want to be involved in. Uh, these are just some examples of of headlines from media reports of misconduct um, investigations. They take a really long time, they can take years, and just the accusation of misconduct is enough to derail a career, let alone if they find you guilty. Um, <clears throat> uh, it's also very common. Inappropriate image manipulation in particular is common. It's really hard to know how common fraud is because the people committing fraud are really trying very hard not to be found. But it's pretty easy to find examples of, of inappropriate image manipulation. So for example, um, one in four manuscripts accepted by the Journal of Cell Biology have unacceptable image manipulations by their standards. So they started screening all accepted papers uh, in the mid-2000s and uh, found a surprising number of them do not follow the rules that they have uh, set out in their instructions for authors. And all of those images get sent back to the authors and the authors have to remake the images um, in an acceptable format. Um, and they also have to send in their raw data, all of their raw, raw images to the journal for the editors to make sure that there are no other problems that were not detected the first time. Um, <clears throat> and other journals that have done similar kinds of surveys have found a similar high percentage of articles that are, are failing the basic uh, rules of image manipulation. Um, so that was before publication. If you're looking after publication, uh, this study looked at 20,000 published papers and found one in 25 with a particular kind of dubious image manipulation called image duplication, where the same data is reused in multiple figures. Uh, uh, this is probably an underestimate because they surveyed by eye. And the, 
um, the most common thing that they found was, uh, this is an example here from uh, microscope images where each of the four panels is meant to represent a different treatment, but it's actually the same image just shifted slightly. And that was the most common kind of problem that they found just by searching by eye. So you might be asking, what's the big deal? I'm not a fraudulent scientist. I don't fake my data. Um, how does this apply to me? And it, it's easy to understand why the fraud side is a big deal because most of us became scientists to uh, discover the truth, not to make it up. And um, uh, the, the problem is, is that fudging, which is actually relatively common, is also lying. It's also distorting the, the scientific record. And um, in doing so, you're misleading your fellow scientists and you're probably wasting their time. Um, and so the reason that journals are really strict about the little things, like making sure you always um, indicate when you've spliced two images together, is because that helps them to to keep track of the, the big things and it helps them find cases of image fraud. So they have to be strict about those little things and they have to um, uh, make sure that nobody's fudging their data. Um, okay, and this is a good thing and you should be happy that journals are strict about it because if you don't handle your image data correctly, you are undermining the integrity of your results. So what's the point of doing all of these, this research if, if the, the data is not good? Um, if you don't handle image data correctly, you risk publication delays, rejections, retraction of your work, and of course, investigation for misconduct. Um, and how, okay, so how are these kinds of things found? Before publication, it's by typically by reviewers and editors, and it's their job to have a look at the images and see if they can see anything about them that looks uh, suspect. And uh, if they do, they will ask for the raw data and they will ask for you to explain why your images look the way they do. There are some journals that also have uh, an automated screening process for helping uh, reviewers and editors to, editors to do this, but for the most part, they just rely on their experience. After publication, um, there are now a number of post-publication review formats, and the most famous is PubPeer. And there is also, I would say, a probably small but very, very enthusiastic cohort of people whose hobby is to comb through the scientific literature and find, image, uh, find evidence of image fraud. So um, that's great. <laughs> and, um, you can PubPeer basically allows you to post a comment about any paper that's been published, and if it's a, if that comment is a, is reporting problems with an image, then that gets reported to the journal itself, and the journal has to investigate. So it could just be a random reader says this image doesn't look right to me, and that is enough to trigger an investigation. Um, the other common way that it's detected is the co-authors of the paper. So perhaps one person was responsible for making the figures and the co-authors uh, after publication notice something off about the images. Um, and some journals are starting to do retrospective screens of 
papers that they've published in the past, for example, molecular biology of the cell is going through this process at the moment and they're anything that uh, they found a number of things uh, where they've had to go back to the authors and they're retracting and correcting papers where, they, where they've not been able to resolve these issues. Okay, so um, the problem is, is that there is that a surprisingly few people know the rules. So nobody can follow rules that they don't know. And uh, I know that was the case for me. When I was, began my scientific training, nobody told me what the rules were, so it was, it was easy to fall foul of them. And um, the image manipulation guidelines were really established in biomedical science by the Journal of Cell Biology. And these days, most journals follow some variant of these basic rules. And they are that no specific feature with an image may be enhanced, obscured, moved, removed, or introduced which is to say you can't, you can't just choose a band or choose a cell and do something, do some image processing specifically to that. You certainly can't copy and paste a band and fraudulently place it somewhere else, but you also can't enhance a specific band or cell or feature of any kind. It also means you can't, uh, it also means that you cannot find a piece of dust and obscure the piece of dust. If, you're, if the piece of dust was there, it was there. Um, second is adjustments of brightness, contrast, or color balance are acceptable if they are applied to the whole image and as long as they do not obscure, eliminate, or misrepresent any information present in the original. Uh, the third is that grouping of images from different parts of the same gel or from different gels fields of exposure must be made explicit by the arrangement of the figure e.g. dividing lines and in the text of the figure legend. So this is pretty commonly, uh, this is a pretty common mistake to uh, splice things together as if they were run in the same gel when they were really from different gels or from different mi microscope fields. And this is a, a big no-no. And finally, and this is probably the most important rule, is if the original data cannot be produced by an author when asked to provide it, acceptance of the manuscript may be revoked because the, 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 the journal can't guarantee anything to its readers if it's not able to view the original data. Okay, so we do, I'm just gonna quickly go through very quickly a couple of um, case studies of uh, misconduct cases. And uh, so this first one was, so it came about when um, editors from the Journal of Clinical Investigation um, noticed some problems in a figure. And they took a closer look at those, um, no, uh, those figures and they noticed some, some serious problems of um, bands, lanes and bands being copied and pasted and moved around in different figures. And the postdoc involved was investigated for misconduct and they found that she had faked, I think, 19 lanes or 19 images and 11 figures across three papers. So this was a pretty serious case of, of faking uh, your data. Uh, it was investigated by the university and then by the Office of Research Integrity. Um, and she was banned from receiving US government funds, moved to Canada, got a job there where she didn't, well, that wasn't such a problem. But when her university there discovered 
the results of the investigation, they fired her from that job too. Um, so this next example is not so much fraud as bad practice. This happened to a postdoc under extreme time pressure, um, trying to um, make the deadline to apply for a permanent re research position in France. And uh, he started storing his micrograph, electron micrograph file sloppily and accidentally used the wrong figure in an image, a wrong, wrong image in a figure. And of course, this was noticed on pub here. They noticed a really obvious example where he had used the same treatment, the same image in the treatment and the control. And that triggered the, the um, journal to investigate. And they found that he'd done another number of sloppy things in the paper of this sort. Uh, the paper was corrected and then eventually retracted and it triggered a misconduct investigation. And they found that it was there was no intent to defraud as far as they could tell, but it was negligence and this all happened during the application cycle and it, uh, although apparently he'd done well in the interviews there was no possibility of making it through <laughs> to get a position um the third case happened 15 years after the paper was published and the senior authors noticed that the contrast in a figure had not been applied evenly across the figure it was only to one part of the image and that there were some spliced images that had not been noted as such in, in the figure legend. And that caused them to take a closer look at some of the rest of the, the images. And they found that, um, they found some examples of duplication of parts of images reused in other figures. And they'd all been done by the, the lead author who was a grad student, but by this time was now a group leader with their own students and uh, so forth themselves. Uh, and the paper was retracted and, it and all of the responsibility was laid with the, this first author. And I think, and I included this case because the point is, is that those, those, the little things, the undeclared image slices that are not necessarily fraud are a red flag to, to reviewers and editors and co-authors that the, the person is not following the rules. And so uh, it would be very wise <laughs> not to do this yourself. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To access the visuals of this webinar, please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Okay, so this is, so now we're gonna talk about the guidelines for how you should be uh, processing your images, manipulating your images, because the chances are you have to do something. And so um, you need to know how to do it properly. Um, so these guidelines are that images are data, to treat them that way, to always retain the original files, to develop an image protocol, make adjustments across the whole image, don't beautify your background, crop and splice to simplify, not to obscure, don't compress your images until you're done, then finally use your judgment to keep a clean conscience, and train your students in the same principles. So probably the most important rule of image manipulation is that your images are data. Uh, they are not just pretty pictures. <laughs> and um, uh, I think people get into a lot of trouble because of, uh, um, because there's a distinction between the way we treat figures for publication and the way we treat the, the way that you should treat uh, data for analysis. So I think um, 
it really helps to visualize all of your images as a matrix or a series of matrices of pixel values as numbers, not think of them as photos or images. And um, the way that you would treat a spreadsheet of numbers is the same way that you should treat your image data. So when you process a spreadsheet, you're transforming your data and the same is true of image processing and your goal should not be beauty, but accuracy. So in this case, the middle image is fine. It's still accurate and, and the, the image to the right is inaccurate <laughs> image processing. Um, and I, th I think visualizing, visualizing data in that way helps you, it helps you apply, apply the rules better. So data in a spreadsheet, you would not alter that unless you had a good reason. So all your changes are justified and you would not change data, uh, numbers in a spreadsheet unless you documented everything that you did. And, this, and exactly the same should be true for your images. Um, and um, so I, I'm, I'm putting up this slide to remind you that uh, of some of the, the reasons that the way a person looks at an image is not the same as the way we analyze data. So your eyes are not capable, for instance, of seeing the full dynamic range of data in an image. We can discern a bit more than a thousand colors, whereas a 16-bit color image there can uh, represent 281 trillion color shades. So what the human eye sees is an approximation of the data and it's biased in various ways by our, the way our brains work. And this is a problem because when we're making um, when we're making figures for publication, we're no longer using, we're no longer analyzing them. We're using them sort of as an illustration of the data. So, for instance, if you have a Western blot, the chances are you are quantitating the various bands, and you can produce a graph that shows what your shows your data analysis. But we don't put, for the most part, people don't just put their graphs in their publication. They also put a representative image of their blots, and the reason is not because it's needed, needed to interpret the, the data. The reason is because people like to see things. They like to see your blots and judge them. <laughs> they like to, to know whether the bands were distinct, and whether you had low background, and um, whether the, the results were convincing if they can see them with their eyes. And um, that's where people get into trouble because they're trying to beautify their images so they look as persuasive as possible um, when that is basically misrepresenting their data. Um, so, so that's why I distinguish between images as data and figures as illustrations of the data. So the second incredibly important rule of image manipulation is that you must retain the originals. Um, best practice is to, after you've acquired an image, is to put it in a separate folder for instance, a folder called a raw, raw images, and you never touch it. After you make a copy of that, that make a copy of that image in another folder, and everything after that, any kind of processing steps only ever happens on that copy. And um, <clears throat> there are a few reasons. So one reason is mistakes. If you make a mistake in processing, you can't go back. The same is true as if you just change your 
procedure. If you change the way you process something halfway through an experiment, um, you need to be able to go back to the raw data and do that consistently across all your samples. Uh, the second reason is that it's really relatively common for editors and reviewers to request your original, your, your raw data, whether they suspect that there's something wrong with it or whether they uh, just are curious to see various features. You need to be able to produce those originals when they ask. In fact, some journals, I, I believe it's the PLOS family and some of the Nature um, journals, require you to submit your originals at submission. So you won't be able to submit your paper to them if you don't have the raw, if you don't have the original file. Um, and a really important reason to retain the originals is it is the only way to defend yourself from accusations of misconduct. Um, it, to some extent, an editor um, who requests who requests that you send him the original files and you are not able to produce them, that editor's hands are tied. And the only conclusion that they can make is either that you uh, are misrepresenting your data or that you are ne negligent. And they can't really tell the difference, but both of them are bad. Um, <clears throat> um, another thing that really helps uh, with uh, image manipulation is to develop an image protocol. So people are used to having protocols for their bench procedures. You know, you, you follow a protocol and you note in your lab book that you follow that protocol, except maybe, you know, and noting any deviations from that protocol. So that's pretty standard for, for bench work, but people can be a little sloppier about it with their imaging. And <clears throat> I think that uh, uh, developing a protocol for your imaging helps you in a number of ways and standardizing that process. And this actually, this applies to image acquisition as well, but we're just talking about processing for the most part here. So have, a, have an image acquisition and processing protocols, and that reduces bias and improves the reproducibility of your results. If people know what you did, they can do it again. Um, and it also helps you keep things consistent between between days and between experiments and allows you to, to, to do comparisons. Uh, it improves your documentation, so it means that you can go back in three years and know what you did in your experiment. Um, when, you, when the editor asks you, you know, what settings did you use? If you have an image protocol and you always follow it, then you know what you did. And, if, and as I said, it makes it easier to compare across experiments because if you're, if you're comparing images, you need the acquisition settings and the process, processing settings to be identical. Um, uh, so uh, another important guideline is to make any adjustments across the entire image, not just a portion of the image. So adjusting brightness, contrast, and color, color balance is totally, totally fine. It's completely expected. but the exception is it, um, you, it has to be applied to the whole image. You cannot adjust the contrast on one particular part of it. So if you have an image that, for instance, is very dark on the left and very light on the right, you can't vary your processing to try and make them similar. That is misrepresenting your data. Um, the other thing is that you can make those adjustments 
but journals will look down on <laughs> any data where you're abusing that adjustment to misrepresent the data in, in some way. That's not allowed. Um, the problem is, is that the, um, this misrepresentation is a continuum, right? You have to make choices on how extreme your adjustments are to contrast and brightness, for instance, depending on the particular experiment and depending on the context. So the settings that work in one case won't work in another. And you really need to think about the, the data that you're showing to make those decisions. So here's an example where the image on the left, um, you can see some higher molecular, uh, some high molecular weight smears at the, at the top of the gel. And you could hide those. They're kind of ugly. They, they don't look like nice bands. You can hide them by having extreme contrast and brightness settings, and they just disappear for the most, you know, at a first glance, they disappear. The problem is, is that those smears respond in this experiment change according to the experimental conditions. So whether or not you can interpret them, they may actually be important. And it would be misrepresentation in this case to uh, hide those smears in that way. In other cases, they may it may just be background noise and it may be completely irrelevant. I think a pretty good rule of thumb though is that the background color of a gel or is not usually white. It should not normally be white. And the same for uh, a micrograph. It's, it's not normally completely perfect, any micrograph. There will be some kind of background noise. And I think uh, most images you will see, um, you would expect to see some background noise. Um, so there are other kinds of adjustments where you have to be careful because it, it depends on the journal. And those are nonlinear adjustments. And those are adjustments that affect pixel, pixels differently depending on their intensity. So if you've ever played with the curves in Photoshop, that's a nonlinear adjustment. And probably the most commonly used one is gamma adjustments, which affect the midtones more than the brightest and the darkest pixels. And these I use, for most journals, I think these are fine, um, but you have to be pretty um, upfront about what you did so that people can replicate it because sometimes it can be hard to replicate nonlinear adjustments. So I would say most journals allow them, but only if the settings are made very clear either in the figure legend or the materials or methods or wherever is appropriate for that journal. Um, so it may be worth checking with the journal that you're submitting to what their requirements are for, for how you declare those settings. <clears throat> um, this, yeah, uh, th this guideline is don't beautify your background. And I would say this is another uh, relatively commonly flouted <laughs> rule. Um, and the reason is, okay, so background noise is a totally normal feature of the real world. It is normal in biological systems, electronic systems, any kind of experiment is going to have background noise. Um, and it's also an important feature of your data. So when people talk about the signal to noise ratio, you need to know what the noise was to know what that ratio is. Um, the temptation is though to get rid of the background noise because it's not 
it's not it's not telling you it's not giving you positive or negative results it's just something in the background and because it makes our it, it doesn't make our results look as nice right but cleaning up that background by targeting specifically the background either whether you are you know smudging out a piece of dust or um, cloning or uh, blurring some stuff in the background if you're if you're if you're singling out the background for that manipulation it's misrepresentation of data you're misrepresenting what an essential feature of your data uh, data looks like and so therefore it's misconduct it, it is also the the underlying motivation for that cleaning up of background is to make your results look more convincing than they really were so um that is the reason you should not be doing it. um okay another commonly flouted rule is cropping and splicing to obscure inconvenient truths so the point of so cropping is when you you make an image you cut off parts of an image to focus on one particular feature and splicing is when you uh, take two images and you put them next to each other as if they're one and cropping images to make them tidy or to focus the reader on a particular feature is totally fine or to make them fit into a certain amount of space that is totally expected you can't put the entire image of, of everything you do into a into a paper um, but it's also easy to crop off things that you don't want people to see an extra band a dead cell um, uh, you know a contaminant on your plate and cropping is not meant to be used for that uh, when it comes to splicing uh, sometimes people splice together images to make it look as if they were acquired together and that also is a misrepresentation of what your experiment actually was and the um, standard practices is that any splicing of any images must be indicated either with a, a line a black line or a gap or something else that tells people these were not the same uh, the same image and there are again there are a lot of journals not a lot there are some journals that require automatically you to submit uncropped gels and blots of supplemental data so that the editors and reviewers can have a look at how you made those cropping and splicing decisions to see whether they were ethical or not <laughs> um so another thing that you should follow is introduced by this distinction between uh images as data and images as illustrations so and that is compression and compression is something that used to be much more common in scientific images because we were restricted by um, the amount of storage we had available but really shouldn't be as much of a problem now and one of the main ways of compressing things is saving them as a jpeg a jpeg uses jpeg uh, is basically uh, a compression algorithm and it's a lossy compression algorithm and what that means is that it throws away data so um and, and introduces artifacts and you're probably familiar with the kind of funny that you get when you save a, a JPEG. JPEG is a very low quality um, version. Um, what it does is it, it breaks up the image into eight by eight blocks and it uses a mathematical transformation to approximate what the pattern in that block is and it throws away all of the mathematical components that contribute the least to that pattern. Um, so 
it, it really compresses things quite a lot and it's not appropriate to use it to analyze data on a JPEG except when it really can't be avoided. Um, and JPEGs work really well. They're designed to look great to the human eye, but they're not designed for, for high resolution computer analysis. And they're also perfect for the final steps of preparing a figure for publication, that is your illustration step, because those, those images for the most part are not going to be analyzed in high resolution by anyone. They're just for showing people what your experiment looks like. And, and they're convenient uh, for uploading your, your images to the internet. Um, instead, you should be using file formats that use lossless compression, and probably the most commonly used and commonly recommended is TIFF, and that's what you would typically want to use in your analysis. TIFF is mainly just because it is um, compatible across a lot of different software platforms. Uh, the other kind of compression that's pretty common is decreasing an image size in terms of its pixel dimensions, so, so total pixel width and height. And doing that also throws away data and introduces artifacts. So that's another thing that you shouldn't, shouldn't do until you're ready for, to make your publication figures. So avoid saving images as JPEGs and don't resize them right until you're finished with all your analysis. Okay, so the problem is, is a lot of, a lot of these guidelines are a little bit squishy, especially things to do with contrast um, and brightness and color balance and things like that. And the way to make decisions in those cases where there's, it's, there's not a, an obvious clear-cut rule is to use your judgment and decide whether or not the image manipulation that you're considering misrepresents your results. And the, what I like to say is you need to ask yourself two questions before any adjustment. The first is, am I making this change to mislead people? Am I making this change to make people feel better about my results than I feel? <laughs> and the other is to imagine someone is looking over your shoulder when you're processing your image and ask, would I be embarrassed to show a skeptical, potentially angry competitor exactly how I process this image? And if you're not embarrassed and if you would happily let them look over your shoulder while you did it, then it's probably fine. Uh, and finally, is train your students in these principles. Nobody can follow rules that they don't know. I was never taught the rules that, that journals use for um, assessing image manipulation. I wasn't taught that by any of my mentors as a grad student or as a postdoc or by any of my lab mates. I learned this from journal letters giving, giving a presentation. And I think that's part of the reason why many of these mistakes are still common. Um, students can't follow rules they don't know. And the other thing to remember is that if your students break the rules and you are their mentor, then you are responsible for those mistakes because you're meant to be guiding their, their research practice. And of course, you should be leading by example. So, um, you know, <laughs> you've got to follow the rules too if you want your students to. Okay, so to recap, I, um, images are data. Always retain those original files, develop a protocol, make sure your adjustments are, are applied across the entire image. Don't beautify your back background. Don't use cropping and splicing to obscure features. Don't compress until you're finished analysis. 
use your judgment to keep a clean conscience and train your students to do the same. Um, so for anybody that wants to learn some more detail about these, these guidelines, I have a couple of resources up there. The first one is a fairly widely used set of guidelines for manipulation. The second is the Office of Research Integrity's online learning tool, which also uses the same guidelines, but puts them in a different format and gives some more examples and case studies and um, uh, various things to help train to uh, help train researchers. And the third is just an infographic, which I think would be a great thing to print out and put on the lab notice board. Um, it's from the American Society for Biochemistry and Molecular Biology. And that's pretty much it. Thanks, Christy. That was a really interesting and thorough presentation about something that I feel like I should have known more about for the last 10 years, but don't. <laughs> <laughs> for some of the same reasons that you actually outlined, I was also never taught any of these things by mentors. And that's sort of fitting with the theme of this module, uh, where we also talked about plagiarism and negative results and outliers. And now we talk about image manipulation, such things that are really, really crucial to the integrity of research, but yet are completely neglected um, as part of the scientific education. So. But that's probably another very long debate. Yeah. <laughs> so, a few questions from the audience. I have a few questions myself. Um, but before we go further, I would just like to remind people to post questions in the questions box that appears on the right hand side of your screen. And we'll try and get through as many of them as we can. So the first question um, is it's actually from me. <laughs> um, it's just about this nonlinear adjustment. I have never heard of this before. Um, could you elaborate on that a little? Um, I, to not really, because I never personally use nonlinear adjustment, but it is a relatively common thing for people to, um, especially in microscope images, uh, people often play with um, the, the gamma settings. And there are legitimate reasons why you would want to do this, um, I believe. It's when most of the information in your image is in those mid-tones and the, the very high and low values are some particular kind of noise that happens to be very bright. I, I believe that's why it's, it's so commonly used. And I think the important thing to remember about it is I don't think that there are many people that say flat out that nonlinear adjustment is wrong, but it, it really it's, it's very important that you be very transparent about what you did because it's impossible to replicate it if you don't know exactly what those settings were. It's relatively easy to replicate uh, a linear contrast adjustment, mm -hmm. but if it's nonlinear, people will have no idea what you did and you really need to document it very thoroughly. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds quite complicated. It sounds like something where you almost need to know exactly what you're doing. I think training yeah. is obviously very important here because otherwise it could go in all kinds of directions, it sounds like. Yes, so well, that's, that. another, that's another reason why I never messed with it, because like, I don't really know how to work this properly. I, I have to work on my microscopy, so uh, maybe that's uh -huh. one reason you come across uh -huh. it. Yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, so thanks for that. Um, we have a couple of questions from the audience. So the first one is from Abdul. Uh, what about correcting illumination problems in a micrograph by subtracting a background image? Is that okay? Yes, 
that is fine if you're so so non-biased background subtraction normalization those things are fine because they're not selective you're not deciding what is background and what is not you have some objective way of um, measuring that so okay. so uh yeah if you so that's basically where you take a photo without a sample and subtract that information from your sample information and that is fine okay thanks for that as, as yeah. long, of course as long as long as it's consistent between samples and of course that you've documented what you did sure and that brings me to a question that i also have um are you actually aware of any training uh online courses that would help people i mean your lecture was mm -hmm. extremely informative but I think to get into the more hands-on aspect of yeah. actually simulating the images. Um, That's a tricky one because that is a sort of a tricky one. I don't, I don't have any good recommendations. There are certainly, um, I mean, certainly Bite Size Bio has a lot of um, resources in, about how to to do particular kinds of image processing and um, companies like. Um, Olympus and such usually have a lot of tutorials on their websites about doing particular things. But I don't know that those are always presented with ethical guidelines in mind. So often, exactly. the, often the goal of those resources is, you know, how do you get the most beautiful image? And exactly. Yeah. So that's why I think um, the Office of Research Integrity tool, I warn you, it does look like it came from the 1990s. It's not the most. <laughs> sophisticated looking website but the information is good and yeah uh, it's a really good resource for um understanding more about about what is okay in 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 the minds of the authorities right so yeah. you can learn you can learn those great techniques but you need to know what the line is between misrepresenting your data and not. exactly and that's why i think mm -hmm. that your tips about ask yourself the two questions i think they're excellent um you know, if if you're not going to be confident to show it to a competitor, it's not okay. I mean, that that makes it very easy, actually. I think for people to to think twice about the the decision that they're about to make. So that's really really useful. Yeah. Do you actually know of any um, resources that are available to build an image protocol? Um, is this also something that you can get from the Office of Research Integrity? No, they don't. I don't believe they have anything there, and I don't know of like templates that you can use. But you, I mean, it's the kind of thing you would build in the same way as you would a new pro, a new wet lab protocol. You need to have the order that you do your steps in. You need yeah. to have the like the decision points. You know, if it does this, then I do that. Um, yeah, and it needs to be detailed enough that somebody else could do exactly what you did and and not need to ask you how you did it and um, get the same result i guess that's yeah. the big question yeah right okay. and so that's why I, that's why I, I i say putting putting in like it's not just you know expose it for this long it's how do you make the decision how do you make the decision about the exposure times like you know, choose the brightest image and then start by start by uh, optimizing exposure on that. So that's like an, an acquisition protocol. And then mm -hmm. when it comes to processing, you know, um, what 
you have to you have to figure out what how to standardize each of the decisions you make at each processing step. Yeah. So I'm sorry I don't have a resource for that. I wish I did. No, I mean it's it's possible. Somebody should make one. Someone should make one. You should make one. <laughs> that can be uh, that can be another lecture. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um we have time for a few more questions. Um okay, so from Brian. What if you have one very faint feature that can only be seen if you turn the contrast and brightness right up, but you also need to show other features in the image at different settings? What can you do? So that so it's actually totally fine to 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 show two different features in an image at two different two different processing procedures with two different processing procedures, but you need to be you may need to make it super obvious in a figure that that's what you've done, so you yeah. can't. You know, you can't sneakily change one side of the image to the other. But what you can do is you can have like an inset box where you show, well, I want to, I've increased the contrast on this particular feature because I want you to see what it looks like. So you just have to be, you just have to be transparent about what you did. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's it's like that for most of this topic. In fact, it's it's really just about being transparent. Yeah. I'm a little bit surprised about some of the things that you said were okay. I was sort of under the impression that almost all in, all manipulation is bad. <laughs> um, so it yeah. seems like there are quite a few things that are okay. You just have to be really upfront about it. Yeah, if, if someone can see what you're doing, and the more obvious you can make it, so it's not. It's if it's something unusual you're doing, you should you certainly shouldn't bury it in the figure legend. You should make it obvious from the layout and the labeling of your figure that you're doing something strange like that. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and then I was just thinking about something else because a couple of weeks ago um, I gave a lecture about plagiarism where I showed some tools that people can use themselves to detect plagiarism and I mean I was not encouraging people to rely on these tools but it was more okay when you when you know what plagiarism is and you know how to avoid it and you put all the guidelines in place but you still want that final check let's say you're paraphrase something and you just want that final check to make sure that mm -hmm. it's okay is there anything similar for for image manipulation is there any program that you can upload your image into that will sort of give you like a red flag if something just seems off i don't know of anything but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist so i'm you know i i might have a look and see if i can find something Okay. Um, I do. I I can share it. Maybe in the oh, that'd be really, really great. Mm. Um. Yes. And okay. A very good question here from Emer. Can your career continue after an accusation of fraud or image manipulation? Uh, it it can. It but it depends on the circumstances and it's. I would say that it can because there is, I know of examples of people who have continued to have a career after um, an investigation like this, uh, but they've usually had to change fields, perhaps they've changed countries, and uh, it's going to be a permanent embarrassment because it's probably, when someone Googles you, it's probably going to be the first thing that they find. Yeah. Um, so yes but it certainly doesn't help no i wouldn't think so 
And then I have another question, and I'm not going to put you on the spot, but um, it came. This also is sort of relating to the overall idea of of ethical research practice and integrity. It came to my attention um, that editors of journals, more broadly speaking, are often not very well trained in how to detect plagiarism and how to follow up plagiarism. And I just want to ask you, as somebody who has a lot of editorial experience, do you have the impression that editors are well trained in dealing with image manipulation, manipulation, or is it is it still rather subjective in some way? It's very dependent on the field and dependent on the journal. I would say that there are the more micro the more microscopy is involved usually the better trained the editors are in okay. this kind of question and because they have to deal with this so often okay um, and particular kinds of journals have reputations right to uphold because they they really like i'm thinking here of um the uh journal of uh cell biology and various other um usually society journals where they they really have made this a thing that they care about and um they will train their editors better in this area but it does vary an awful lot okay so, so yeah there's there's a long way that we could go in, in that respect yeah that's um that's unfortunate <laughs> yeah <laughs> I mean, I yeah. think it's it's changing. I mean, it's already better than it used to be, but you know, yeah, it's a it's a work in progress, and hopefully, the field is going more and more. Hopefully, the scientific yeah. community is moving more and more in the right direction. So, I have one last question, and that pretty much wraps up today's session. Um, it's from Sonia, and it's about Photoshop filters like Unsharp. Are they okay? I don't. I don't know. And there is no, I can't find any clear guidance because there are two schools of thought. Um, it's these kinds of filters are again something that's used usually in microscopy, uh, and uh, unsharp. Uh, sorry, sharp is um, uh, is a transformation that's applied to the data that enhances the appearance of sharp lines between features and some people argue that it's a better representation of your data because it compensates for, for some blurring introduced by acquisition. And uh, it certainly can make things a lot more obvious, can make features a lot more obvious. Um, and definitely is something practiced by people producing very beautiful microscope images. Mm -hmm. um, but there, but there are other people that say no. This is this is basically a misrepresentation of your data, and this is transformation. Even though it's evenly applied across the image, it's mm. too it's too extreme a change. And mm. it's definitely the case that if you if you don't do this wrong, you can introduce artifacts. Like if you're not if you don't know what you're doing with a filter like that, you can easily introduce, you know you can make it look a certain way or you can introduce yeah. a new feature that was never there to begin with. Mm, yeah. So I can't, I can't tell you whether it's good or bad. I can tell you that people have different opinions on it and um, it's certainly something that you would need to 
declare if you're submitting something for publication if you've used a filter like that yeah. um uh, yeah basically yeah it just reminded me of one other question um let's say in a situation like where you you're submitting something to a journal and and you're not 100% sure if what you've done is okay or not but you have absolutely no intentions of trying to fool anybody can you actually be upfront with the editor and say look i did this is it actually okay and if the editor tells you that it's not okay have you sort of um have you already given a bad impression or does that happen will they guide you i suppose is what i'm trying to ask yeah so so i would say my general advice for people with questions about what they're doing <laughs> for publication is to talk to the editorial staff first. okay most yeah. journals will have editorial staff and then they will have the, the academics and, or you know they'll have editors that handle the decisions and the peer review and they will have academic staff that just generally uh, sorry editorial staff that just generally look after the journal and the, they're sort of the gatekeepers and okay. you're much less likely to bug the person that's making the decision on your manuscript if you start with the editorial staff and ask them can you yeah. help me is this is this usually okay in your journal and they, um, if they don't know the answer, they will have a better sense of whether you should ask the editor or not. They can also, they can sort of, you know, be an intermediary, if you like. Uh, it's also true that many editors are very helpful and will help you figure stuff like that out. But it, of course, people are all different and it varies. Yeah. Um, so yes yeah, so i so i don't know it depends on it depends on the particular case but i can, yeah but in general i editorial staff are, are very happy to talk to authors about those sorts of things and try to figure out how they can help the authors yeah okay that's great advice and um, that pretty much brings us to the end of the seminar so thanks again christy for a really illuminating presentation and a very interesting discussion and finally, thanks to the audience for joining us. The full video recording of this session will be available on the Bioscience Mastery Academy website from tomorrow, along with the slides and any other supporting materials. As always, in the Academy, we are here to help. So you, if you have questions on this topic or any other topic now or even later, please post them in the forum and the mentoring team will be there to help. So we're going to sign off for now. We'll be back again next week with another great seminar on how to write a research paper from Dr. Amanda Welch. Check it out at biosciencemastery.com. Goodbye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To view the full presentation of this webinar or to browse the Listen In series, please see the episode description for links. Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Mentors at Your Benchside in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists.